Turn with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter one, verses one and two. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The letter to the Ephesians uh, was written while Paul was in prison in Rome. That would be between 60 and 62 AD. Uh, Paul wrote four letters to four churches. If you're taking notes, uh, they are Philemon, Philippians, Colossians, and Ephesians. And we call them the prison epistles. And they were written while Paul was in Rome on his first missionary journey. That's when he was in prison. Turn with me, uh, even though we're only going to do two verses here, most of our Bible study is going to be in the book of Acts and um, Revelation and Corinthians. So let's turn to the book of Acts, chapter 18, and give you a little bit of the background of um, the Ephesian church. Picking it up, Chapter 18, verse 18, tells us, so Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed from Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Centura, for he had taken a vow. And he came to Ephesus, and he left them there. Them is Priscilla and Aquila. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay longer time with them, he did not consent. But he took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I'll return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea and had gone up and greeted the churches, he went down to Antioch. So Paul's first trip and going to um, um, Ephesus, he leaves there Priscilla and Aquila. Remember, he had met them. They had things in common. They were both tent makers. And so he left them because he saw potential in, in the city itself. Um, Paul's second trip to Ephesus, this, this would have been Paul's second trip to Ephesus where he leaves Priscilla and Aquila. Now, Ephesus was the leading city in the area and it was second only to Rome itself. And um, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna take you there um, I have many pictures that we could have shown. I just picked out nine, and I'm going to briefly comment on them as we put them up on the screen, and uh, because they'll be a part of our study this morning. What you're looking at there is one of the ancient wonders, one of the seven of the ancient wonders in the world. It's the temple to Diana. 
and we'll be talking more about her. Um, when you go inside, this is, a, of course, a rendition of it. I'll show you what it looks like today with the ruins and everything. But it had... Um, okay, we'll, we'll go on to the next one. I'll talk more about the temple later. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, what you're looking at here is the main street that leads down to... Um, the Mediterranean Sea, and um, if you look straight ahead, there will be a different picture of this later. Um, uh, The library, which is some of the best um, ruins that remained intact. And halfway down that little road, if you look up, you'll see a, a, a structure with uh, blackish stones, and it looks like it got a window in it. Everybody see it? That would have been the church in Ephesus. Next picture. Okay, this is um, just like the last one. <laughs> a little bit different, a little bit different angle, but again, at the bottom you can see the uh, the library. So let's go on to the next one. Here we have um, to the uh, right, uh, I'll have a better picture of it in a second here, uh, some of the ruins of the temple to Diana of the Ephesians. And um, again, um, next picture please. Here's the library, and um, it's probably the best preserved um, building uh, and you can see it had two stories there. Um, they had some of the scrolls from the um, library in Alexandra that those that survived ended up here in Ephesus because of the prominence of the city of Ephesus itself. And next picture shows us, well, here, here's a good picture of the, the library itself. And um, basically the face of it is, is, is what remains. And you can see um, the background part of it. Off in the distance there would be the Mediterranean Sea. Next picture, please. Um, this here is part of the ruins of uh, the temple again. And again, in the background, you see... Um, uh, the Mediterranean, and I'll talk a more a little about this later. When Ephesus was originally built, it was built as a port city. But what has happened since Paul's day, when it was a port city, is silt filled in the distance that you're seeing here to the sea is about five or six miles or so. And so when we visit there, they have a canal that they had to dig so that the ships could make it up to the city itself. Next picture, please. This is the amphitheater. And this will be a part of our study this morning. Um, we even, when we go there, this is where we have our Bible study. Um, this is where the ruckus took place because so many people were getting converted to the Lord in Ephesus their main business 
was uh, sorcery, making idols of Diana, and sales were dropping off big time because everybody's getting saved. And uh, there's one guy that we'll be reading about who made a big ruckus about it, and he gets the whole city to, to go there, and nobody knows why they're there for Sort of like our government, you know. They're there, but they don't really know what they're there for. <laughs> that's not my notes, by the way. <laughs> um, but that's the way it looks. Um, and I believe you can see the, the street in the background there. But this would have been facing um, um, the Mediterranean. I think that's all there is. Is there any more? Or is that the last one? Oh. This is what they made in silver, and this is the main moneymaker. If you would visit Ephesus, and when I visited Ephesus, I got my own. Uh, That would have been out of silver. This one wasn't. So the guys in the prayer room want to know why I'm carrying around an idol, and I thought, well, I really didn't have a good answer to give them. <laughs> so um, I'll put it up for sale afterwards, baby. I can get something for it. I don't know. All right. So Diana, we'll, we'll get to her in just a bit. The temple itself, again, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Um, It was 418 feet by 239 feet in size. It had 127 columns. And it was considered one of the ancient, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. When you went inside the temple, they had the image of um, Diana. That would be the Roman name. The Greeks here call her by a different name, and I'll point that out when we come to it. If we turn now to um, chapter 18, picking it up at verse 18. We already read that, didn't we? Then I want you to turn to Acts 19, and we're going to read what, uh, 1 through 20. And it happened when Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper region, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, well, we've not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And so he said to them, into then what were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. So today we were supposed to have a baptism. And we have a Bible study before every baptism. And we have somebody give their testimony how they came to know the Lord. And one of the things that I go do is I go to Acts chapter 8. And I point out and make it very, very clear that while while Philip was there in Samaria, a lot of people were getting saved. And a lot of people were being baptized. Even the town sorcerer got saved. And... um, um, And then it says this, it said they were baptized, but they were not baptized in the Holy Spirit, and so they called for Peter and John to come up from Jerusalem, and when Peter and John came up from Jerusalem, they laid hands on them, 
and they receive the Holy Spirit. So Dwight, what's your point? There's two baptisms. So when you're, there's people that have been baptized in water and, uh, but not baptized in the Holy Spirit. And I also point out when Cornelius got saved, uh, the first Gentile, remember, his Bible study was interrupted <laughs> because when he got to the part in mentioning um, Cornelius was a centurion and a nice guy and um, he wanted to know the Lord. And so um, Peter, I believe it was, or Paul goes over and in the middle of the Bible study, he talks about Jesus can forgive your sins. And nobody said a word, but in their hearts they believed it. So what happened? The Holy Spirit fell on the Bible study, interrupted the Bible study, so that um, uh, Peter had to say, um, can't, can't anybody forbid them now being baptized in water, seeing that they're already baptized in the Holy Spirit? Are you following my train of thought here? The Bible clearly teaches there are two baptisms. And um, that's a big part of a Bible study, that when we pray for you to be baptized, we also pray that if you haven't already, um, there's people that have been baptized in the Holy Spirit that have been baptized in water and vice versa. So here, um, Apollos The only thing he knew about baptism was John's baptism of repentance. And he didn't know, verse four, then Paul said, John indeed baptized, uh, he's talking about John the Baptist, uh, with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, and that is on Christ Jesus. Now when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of, of the Lord Jesus, and when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about 12 in all. Now, Paul is gonna stay here for three months, and he's gonna teach in the school called Tyrannus. And he went into the synagogue, and he spoke boldly there for three months. So there was a Jewish synagogue in Ephesus reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe but spoke evil of the way, this is the first word for before they were called Christians, they were called people of the way. And this is where it comes up here. Of the way before the multitudes Uh, He departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And he continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Gentiles. So when you go to the book of Revelation, and um, you go, we'll go there and talk a little bit about Ephesus. Um, There are seven letters to seven churches. They're all in an area about within 80 miles of each other. And what was happening here in Ephesus 
as people were getting saved, the gospel was going out. And um, the seven letters that, that are written in the book of Revelation uh, had its birth, birthing because of Paul teaching in this school and so many people coming to the Lord. Um, I would compare Ephesus to Vegas, okay? It was, uh, Diana was a goddess of fertility. So it was a party town. And um, so you had all these people that were having these radical <laughs> conversions and they were going home and people who knew them, their friends would look at them and say, what happened to you? <laughs> That's what they said to me when I got saved. What happened to you? And, um, you know, during you know, during my generation, we were looking for peace and love, and we didn't find it. And then we met the Lord, and we found peace and love. And it spread like wildfire. Uh, just for off the record, there's, not good, there, there's a lot of talk about revival coming and things returning back to normal. Um, historians who write about worldwide revivals says there's only been one in America in the last 100 years, and it was called the Jesus Movement. We were baptizing thousands of people weekly in Pirate's Cove in Southern California, and we had house ministries, communal ministries, in every state, including Hawaii, Alaska, and uh, the Virgin Islands. And during that time, we're going to have John Higgins with us um, during the Prophecy Conference. Jeremy, his son, who's in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, is going to be coming too. Um, The last thing that John was, was a hippie. (laughs) He he was a Catholic from New York. And uh, he comes to California, and he gets saved, and uh, he's the only guy in a sport coat and tie in a whole, a whole place. Everybody else had long hair and beards. So what did John do? He grew his hair long and he grew a beard. Why? Because the Bible says to become all things to all men so you can win them. And that's what John did. And he's quite the communicator. And as a result, we had our first uh, missionary outreach house called the House of Miracles. And we filled that up really quick. And um, uh, before you knew it, we were having Shiloh houses all over the country. And in my generation, everybody was doing this. You wanna hit the road? Yeah, let's hit the road. How are you gonna get there? We're gonna get a hitchhike. They picked up hitchhikers back in those days. And then they'd say, hey, you know a good place to crash? Um, maybe get a free meal, a place to stay? Oh yeah, go to, go to any shallow house. They'll feed you, they'll give you a place to sleep, and all you have to do is listen to their Bible studies. Because I really didn't learn the Bible when I went to Bible school. I learned the Bible because we had Bible studies every single night at seven o'clock. And we had people coming off the street. Is this the place that puts people up for free? Yeah. Come on in. <laughs> Matter of fact, I got a phone call. Boy, now I'm really getting off track. From some guy that um, I hadn't seen in 40 years, maybe 50 years. 
and he wants to get together because we were in the same house together in um, um, Minnesota. That's the city of the state I was thinking of. So anyway, um, there's this big uh, change that took place and these churches that were started, I uh, left off um, in verse 10 of chapter 19 that um, Paul here is teaching two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus. That's where I got sidetracked talking about the seven churches in Turkey. Now, God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were bought, brought from his body to the sick and the disease left them and the evil spirits went out of them. And then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves, that's important, to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, we adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. So here's guys that don't know the Lord but they're impressed what Paul's doing. And they say, we want to do that too. So they come up to a guy that's demon possessed and say, we command you. Um, in the name of the Jesus, the one that Paul preaches about. And uh, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest who did the same thing. And the evil spirits answered so they can communicate and speak through the person and said, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on him. In other words, he comes out of the man who's possessed, jumps upon the ones that aren't saved and are trying to invoke uh, the Lord to remove the spirits, overpowered them, prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And boy, does my mind race with that. How could they see the demon? Was the demon invisible? How did they get beat up? How were all their clothes taken off? It, it raises more questions than it gives you answers. But nonetheless, the Bible teaches that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Good place for an amen. But against powers and principalities in high places. And there are different orders to the demonic world. We learn that from the book of Daniel. This became known both to all the Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus Christ was magnified even more. And many who believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And he counted up the value of them and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. That's quite a bonfire. And so the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed it, purposed in the spirit, 
when he had passed through Macedonia and Acacia to go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Aratus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. Now this next section here is gonna, when I showed you the amphitheater um, and the main means of any tourist town, um, I hear Al Johnson's up in Newark County just enlarged itself. And um, everybody knows what Al Johnson's is and they know what it's known for. What is it known for? Yeah, the goats up on a, on, a, uh, <laughs> on a roof eating. Plus they got really, really good cherry pie. Mm. So about the same time, there was a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made shrines of Diana and brought him no small profit to his craftsmen. So his maiden trade, or one of the main trades in Ephesus, was making these things out of silver. But now everybody's getting saved. I mean, people that were demon-possessed are getting set free, and um, manifestation of demonic warfare literally beating up people and ripping off their clothes. That had to get around town. And as a result, um, people were turning to the Lord and turning away from the idol of Diana of the Ephesians. Because like it says here, uh, he made a lot of money out of it. So he called them together with the workers of similar occupation. So there was more than one guy making these statues. Man, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout most of all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people saying that they are not gods, which are made with our our hands. So not only is this our trade, we're in danger of falling into destiny destitute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificent destroyed, whom all of Asia and the world worship. And when they heard this, they were filled with wrath and cried out, saying, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And so the whole city was filled with confusion and they rushed into the theater, okay? That was the theater that we put up on the screen. So you have the whole town cramming into this um, theater with one accord, and they seized Gaius and Aristarchus and Macedonius and Paul's traveling companions. When Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him to. Then some of the officials of Asia who were his friends sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and some said another. 
for the assembly was confused and most of them didn't even know why they were there. And they drew Alexander out of the multitudes and the Jews putting him forward and Alexander motioned with his hands and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And when the city clerk, like this would be the mayor, when he heard um, something's going on at the amphitheater, um, he said, well, what's the big deal? And they said, well, we really don't know. There's this guy called Paul, and he's talking about another god, and... and um, uh, the guys that are making the images, they're losing their money. And they whipped up the crowd and they got them all into the Colosseum. And the mayor says, well, what did they do wrong? Is, it, is this a religious argument we're talking about here? We're, we're under the Roman Empire. And unless you got charges against these guys, and they better be big charges to create this sort of an uproar, I'll finish reading it here. Verse 36, therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here. They're not robbers of temples. They're not blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, let the courts be open and let them be judged and charged. But if you have... Any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly. Why? For we're in danger of being called into question for today's uproar. There's, there being no reason which uh, we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when they said these things, he dismissed the assembly. They had no charges. And um, Rome didn't like crowds getting out of order for no reason at all. So in chapter 19, uh, we have Paul teaching in this school for a couple years. A lot of people getting saved, a lot of people getting delivered from demons, and um, the gospel is going into all the world. Now, I'd like you to turn to chapter 1 Corinthians 20, and let's look at verse 18. Um, oh, I'm going to go back to 16. So chapter 20, verse 16, more background as we have our introduction to the book of Ephesians. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have time to spend um, in Asia for he was in a hurry to be at Jerusalem, if possible, for the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus, and he called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, you know, from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to be by the plotting of the Jews. And how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you 
and taught you publicly from house to house, uh, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city saying that chains and tribulations await me, and I love this verse, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy. How would you like to get up in the morning and you go, here I am, Lord, what's up for today? Well, let's see, we got chains, um, we got prison, Whatever town you go into, you're going to get beat up. You're probably going to end up in jail. And um, he's telling this to the leaders that are uh, he's getting ready to say goodbye to. And um, this is one of my favorite verses. But none of these things move me. Remember last week we were talking about Presidon? And I know no matter how difficult your problem might be, or maybe you have a friend who's going through difficulties and problems, Um, you you can either fall back or you can press on. Paul knows full well what's gonna happen to him. The Lord told him. So what does he do? Doesn't move me. What's the big deal? And uh, none of these things move me because he doesn't count his own life dear to himself. Um... And one of the most important verses that we need to read, continue reading here. I may, that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all men. He knows he's gonna be leaving. And he wants to make sure that everything is right between him and the rest of the people. And he's, so basically he's saying, if you got a problem, bring it up now, we'll, we'll settle it, we'll, we'll get it straight. I wanna leave here with a clear conscience. And so on and so forth. And then we have this very important verse. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. That is why we teach chapter by chapter, book by book, verse by verse, through the entire Bible. The example is given to us here. Will you go through trials? Absolutely. All those who live godly in Christ Jesus will never have a problem again as long as they live. Just the opposite is true. All those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. People don't like to hear about Jesus. Um, Most people that get saved usually come because they're so broken down they finally look up. And that's the truth about most Christians and how they get saved. It's not God's preference. The Bible says that... um, It's the love of the Lord that should draw a person to Christ. That's God's desire. He doesn't want to see you hit bottom so that you look up. 
goes on and says, therefore take heed to yourself and to the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know that after my departure, salvage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Um, I'm sure there were people just waiting in the wings for Paul to leave so they could make their move. And he knew it. Uh, that didn't have the same convictions that Paul had. And he said, even from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Paul was concerned about them coming to Jesus, but there were people in Ephesus that wanted people to be following that individual. That's what Paul is saying here. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years, I did not cease to warn you every night and day with tears. Paul saw the writing on the wall. He says, when I'm out of here, it's not gonna be good because there's people in Ephesus with the wrong motive. And um, they're gonna seek to change things around and I told you about it day and night for three years with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessity. Remember, he was a tent maker with Priscilla and Aquila, of whom and those who are with me. I've shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus. He said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all. They, then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck. That had to hurt, don't you think? Falling on his neck and kissed him. No, not only was there not any animosity or weirdness between Paul and the elders, but just the opposite. You're not gonna see me again. And um, it, it broke their hearts. Sorrowing most of all for the words that he spoke that they would see his face no more and they accompanied him to his ship. So I call this section here Paul's farewell to the elders in Ephesus. Um, Ephesus today, like I said earlier, is in Turkey. It's on the coast. It is one of the seven letters that are written in the book of Revelation, and that's where we're going now, Revelation chapter three. Talk about a church that had all things going for it. Revelation, well, as long as I'm here, um, let me give you the division of the book of Revelation. If you look at verse 19, um, we have the division. John was the only disciple not to be martyred. Um, 
It's not in the Bible, but in Fox's Book of Martyrs and other places, it is written that they tried to boil John in oil, and John would not cook. And so they exiled him to the island of Patmos. And so the year here is about 96 AD, and um, he is on Patmos, and the Lord appears to him in chapter one, and it describes him. Um, his appearance, his head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like flames of fire. His feet was like fine brass, as refined in a furnace, and his voice the sound of many waters. And then he says to John, when John saw him, he fell down and fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said to me, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. Now the reason we know that this is Jesus is other men in the Bible, when they would see an angel and being overwhelmed by the angel, they would fall down on their face and worship the angel. And then the angel would rebuke them and said, get up, I'm not the Lord. And he allowed this to happen, but uh, John's freaked out seeing the Lord in his glorified body. He said, don't be afraid, I'm the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. Now here's the key to the book of Revelation, verse 19. Write the things which you have seen. All right, what has he seen? Well, he's seen the Lord in his glorified body, chapter one. And then it says, and then write the things which are. Now that's in the present tense. If you have a red letter Bible, um, this would be in red, and it is referring to the church age. And uh, we are currently living in that time frame. So we're, the church is still here. So the things that are, present tense, is the church age. And then the third division of the book of Revelation, which is the, the bulk of the book, is and write the things which will be after this. The Greek word is meditata, implying what? After what things? After the things of the church. Uh, The world is gonna go on um, after that, but the church won't be there. So the bulk of the book of Revelation is divided up, and here's the division for it right here. And then he begins to explain to him in verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Messenger would be a better translation here. And I believe it's a reference to the pastor himself. And the seven churches and the seven lampstands which are the seven churches. So write seven letters. Make sure the pastor gets them. And then um, uh, the seven lampstands which you saw, these are the seven churches. How did they get there? Paul teaching 
in Tyrrhenius for a couple years, gospel going out, and like I said, that these seven churches are all in a radius, they're all in Turkey today, which, uh, and it would be like here to Milwaukee, okay? And no farther apart, so they were, they would have, um, it doesn't say it, but many Bible commentators imply that it was a circular letters plural and that all seven churches each got to read them. I personally don't hold to that. I think this is an individual word to that particular church. And my reasoning for that is that the Lord chooses a title for himself to, to address that particular church and it describes a problem or the good thing that's going on with that church. Now the first one is Ephesus. So in Ephesus, to the messenger, the pastor, the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. So what is he saying? Well, um, wherever two or more gather together in my name, I'm there. And I'm walking amongst that church. That's how he chooses the title. And there's a reason he chooses this for a title, as you're going to shortly see. He says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. You have tested those who say they're apostles and are not. You found them to be liars. You have persevered. In other words, they kept going when things got tough. And you have patience. You've labored for my name's sake, and you've not become weary. Nevertheless, boy, they had all this stuff going for them, and then the Lord says to them, nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. I want you to notice what he says here is that they didn't lose it, they left it. Well, what did they leave it for? To do all these great works that were there. And um, the Lord rebukes them for it, and he says, I want you to remember something. Um, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. He sees them in a backslidden state. He says, I want you to remember. All right, let's just take a moment. Remember when you first came to the Lord? Remember what it was like having um, um, your sins forgiven? The Holy Spirit coming in? And the freedom that you felt? And the peace that you felt? And the gratitude that you had because of what just happened to you? That's what he's asking them to remember. They, had, they didn't lose it, they left it. And they got busy, I could call this social gospel. Wasn't la- didn't last week we talk about the social gospel? Well, they talk about the gospel, they'll talk about Jesus, but that's not primarily their mission. And um, that's what I see happening here. So, so, so he says, remember from where you have fallen, and then I want you to repent. And that word simply means turn around. Stop putting your works first and get back to the first thing. What's the first and greatest commandment? Oh yeah, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your mind. 
that's the first and greatest commandment, had now fallen into second place. And go and do the first work, and how would you like to have Jesus say, or else? Whoa, I wouldn't want him to have to say that to me. Or else, I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. In other words, um, (laughs) I'm giving away my age again. Remember that old Peter and Gordon song? I don't care what they say, I won't stay in a world without love. That's what what the Lord is saying here. I don't care what you do. I don't care what you say. I'm not staying. If loving me isn't the first thing that's going on in this church, then I'm out of here. And I'm gonna remove you from being a church. How many churches have church with a lot of good programs? A lot of good work projects? Huge Sunday school ministries? And the emphasis isn't on loving the Lord and loving one another, but it's the service and turning, like we talked about last week, into a social gospel. But I like this in counseling. Now, if you share with people and you're counseling with people, here is a great model that Jesus lays out. He tells them what's wrong. He tells them how to get it right. But he doesn't leave them there hanging with their head down. What does he do? He goes back and he encourages them. In verse six, he says, but this you have. He says, you got all this wrong, but this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans is two Greek words, Nico, uh, leader, laity, people, ruler over people. And what was beginning to happen I think in Ephesus was men wanting to rule over people that Paul warned them about for three years, remember, day and night with tears? And now he says, you got that much doubt, that you hate the deeds of a man ruling over the people. No, there's one mediator between you and God. Good place for an amen. And it's not me, and it's not you. And he says, I'm glad you hate this doctrine. Because when the veil in the temple was rent when Jesus died on the cross, it meant you got a straight shot. You don't go through anybody. You have direct access to the Father through Jesus. Um, Which I also hate. He who has ears to hear, everybody check, make sure you got him. And let him hear what the Spirit says to the church and to him who overcomes I will give to eat from the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. This is the only other place in the Bible that the tree of life is mentioned except in Genesis. It's mentioned there and it's mentioned in Revelation uh, chapter three, verse seven. Okay, Um, so the or else there is the Lord being serious about maintaining a first love relationship with him. All right, let's get a definition of that by going to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13, and the importance of love. Let's read the first three verses. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but if I have not love, I become 
a sounding brass and a clanging cymbal. Doing a lot of stuff, making a lot of noise, but if the love of God isn't the motivating force behind it, as Paul would put it this way, it's the love of Christ that constrains me. Paul was saying, I do what I do because I love Jesus, period. Uh, and if there's any other motive, then you're just making a lot of noise and you're clanging symbol. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. Counts for nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but I don't have love, it profits me nothing. Clear enough? Can't make it any more clear than that. You can have all the gifts of the Spirit working, and um, uh, the Corinthian church certainly did. But then what he goes on, and he gives um, a definition of what he means by this love. In verses four through 13, love suffers long, is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up, we'd say not, not cocky. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own, like the guys that Paul was warning the people in Ephesus about. Is not provoked, it thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they'll fail. Where there are tongues, they will cease. Where there's knowledge, it will vanish away. Um, For now we know in part and prophesy in part. Now verse 10 is a very interesting verse, and I'll get sidetracked here a little bit on it. Uh, So it's given a definition of the characteristics of God's love. When that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away with. Now this is a very important verse. Oh, I would say 25, 30 years ago, um, if I named the name of the church, everybody here would know who it was, and they were bringing in a new pastor, and um, what the leadership in the church wanted was the area pastors to come in to meet this guy that they were considering, and they wanted us to ask him questions um, so that when it appeared that it was just the elders that he would be known and respected in the valley as um, a solid evangelical Bible-believing Christian. And so each of us got to ask the candidate one question. So everybody's going around answering, asking the question. And when it got to me, I said... Um, I just have one, one question for you. I said in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 10, it says, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away with. What does that verse mean to you? And in particular, 
what is being referred to, it says, and when that which is perfect has come, who and what is he referring to? And he didn't hesitate one bit. And um, for some of you who don't know, this is a very debated uh, doctrinal question among many churches. And I knew if you gave me the answer that I was wanting to hear, I would know a whole lot about this guy by just asking us one question. Is everybody with me? So the question was, what do you think that which is perfect is? And he says, it's Jesus. And I said, well, you just got my vote. (laughs) So what's the big issue? What else could it be? Well, the argument is when the Bible would be complete, then all the other gifts, when you have this book, then you got it all. And uh, then these other gifts will be done away with. Well, to me, this is a no-brainer because um, if you go to chapter 12, it talks about the different gifts that were given. Remember that the Bible had not been written yet. It is being written as it's unfolding. So the thought is when the Bible is complete, then you're not gonna need the gifts of um, uh, teachers or miracles or helps or administration. That's why there's many churches today that do not believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, where we believe in all of them except one, and that would be the first one mentioned, apostles. In order for you to be an apostle, you had to have the words come right out of Jesus' mouth, follow me, and be a witness of the resurrection. And if it wasn't the Lord himself calling that individual, then you couldn't be apostle. So the Lord's not with us now, but he's coming. But today, when, uh, and I bring it up because there's organizations springing up, the new apostolic reformation, um, saying that uh, the gift of being an apostle is effective again, and the authority that goes with it even trumps the word of God, if you're an apostle. Well, Um, as far as I can tell, except for that one, all these other gifts are in operation today. And I've experienced, I would say, all of them. And um, so to me, um, it's not a very difficult one to uh, answer that question when that which is perfect has come. Who is perfect and who's coming? Jesus, That's the, that was the right answer and it answered all my questions about this guy and I said, you got my vote. Nope, go on to the next guy. He ended up becoming the pastor of that church, by the way. Verse 11, when I was a child, I spoke as a child and understood as a child. I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. But now we see in a mirror dimly Um, what that means to me is I know the Lord Jesus Christ on a personal level. He speaks to me on a daily basis. And I won't give a Bible study unless I feel it's come from him. I know where we're headed. (laughs) I know we'll be in chapter, rest of chapter one next week. But I don't know what the Bible study's gonna be about. I'll know during the week because he'll tell me exactly where we're gonna be and what's, what the main point of that is going to be. 
Now we see in a mirror dimly. So we have this personal relationship. We use terminology like um, um, the Lord told me. You ever have somebody say, well, the Lord told me this or the Lord told me that. I don't have a problem with that because I don't know if he did or didn't. But I know that he speaks to me and I know that he speaks to many, if not all of you. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. This is further evidence that that which is perfect has come is a reference to Jesus. Because when Jesus comes to get me, I won't, I won't need to have the gift of the interpretation of tongues because I'll have a new body and I will know as I am known. So um, just as God knows me, so I will be like him and will see him face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. And now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, and the greatest of these is love. As we close up this morning, um, in our language for love, um, we only have, um, we have different definitions for our word for, for love. For instance, I love Turtle Sundays from Leon's in Oshkosh. I love them. I love old cars. I love my wife. But that same word that I use for describing, um, do you know that Leon's bakes their custard on spot? Boy, I hope they're listening and they're getting this commercial and they say, get this guy down here and give him some coupons. <laughs> It's true. Whenever we had a party or any celebration, it was Leon's. And we went, and if you've never had one of their uh, turtle Sundays, you'll thank me later. It's not so in the Greek. The Greek for the word love has three definitions. It breaks it up. Because um, the first one would be eros, where we get our word erotic from, or sensual. Um, so that would be one term. And then there's phileo, um, where we get um, Philadelphia. What's the meaning? What do they say about Philadelphia? It's a city of what? Brotherly love. So now we have a love relationship between you know the guys in the fellowship. You love them, they love you, and, uh, but it's not the same as Eros. And then we have the word agape. Some people like to say um, um, agape or agapi or whatever. That's what we have in view here. This is a love that can only be produced by the Holy Spirit. Its characteristics are defined for us as we read here a little bit earlier. For now we know in part and we prophesy in part. And when all is said and done, there's three things that remain. And in closing, I said that once and now it's the second time, so maybe he'll finish it this time. Let's find out. Um, Faith, hope, and love. That's what remains. Faith in what? Well, 
I have faith that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. And when did he do that? He did that in the past. And um, Paul said, forgetting those things that are behind, I press on. So my faith is taken care of. I don't worry about it. And um, that's, so that's taken place and that takes care of my past. Hope, well, the Bible says that the Lord's coming one of these days. And with the world as crazy as it is, it doesn't, it bothers me, of course. And it can, um, and until I get things straight and hearing the voice of the Lord in the morning, it can be a tough day and it can be overwhelming. And some of you are identifying with me on that one. But I still have hope because I know that's not the end. First Thessalonians 5 again. When we talk about these heavy things, now we got an oil refinery that's gonna affect four states that are heating bills this winter. Well, just add on another one to think about and you can worry about. But what? I have hope. I know that there's coming a time that Jesus said is gonna be the worst time that the world has ever known. And Jesus said to the church of Philadelphia that I'm gonna keep you from the trial that's going to come upon the entire world. And that only thing that could refer to is a great tribulation period. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, it says, God has not appointed you to that period of time, so don't worry about it. In verse 11, 1 Thessalonians 5, it says, therefore, Scare one another to death with these words. No, comfort one another. And some of you are thinking, Dwight, you're saying that every Sunday morning, and as long as things happen like they do from day to day to day to day, I'm gonna keep saying it every Sunday morning so that you walk out these doors comforted. I can't dismiss what's happening. I can't tell you that the tribulation isn't gonna take place when the Bible clearly says it is. But it says, I'm not going through it. So what does that do? Well, I have hope. So what is that? If my past is taken care of, and I have hope for the future of not going through the tribulation, what does that free me up to do? Jesus said, take no thought for tomorrow. Ooh, that's a pretty heavy thing to say. I got a lot of things on my plate. Take no thought for tomorrow. Sufficient for this day is the evil thereof. Well, what does that mean? Don't worry about anything about tomorrow. Don't worry about anything about the future. Just worry about what you got for today. The only thing I'm worried about for today is what am I gonna have for lunch? (laughs) Ah, Boy, that's a tough one. What am I gonna have for lunch? I have the same thing for lunch every Sunday afternoon, as my wife will tell you. And um, so as we begin the book of Ephesus, we see Paul's the one that planted it. The gospel went throughout all of Asia Minor. And um, um, it's the church that Jesus um, warned that you better keep me in first place as your first love. And when you have your faith 
that your sins are forgiven, taken care of, and we have hope that the Lord is going to come and take us out of here, well, you'll know the truth. And what will the truth do? It'll set you free. So you can walk out the door comforted and not going home and go, oh, my gas prices are going to go through the roof this winter because of what happened yesterday. That's going to happen. But I'm not going to worry about it. Good place for an amen? amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. As we do this introduction, forgive those who thought these was going to be a short Bible study because there was only two verses that we read out of Ephesians. And um, we're grateful as uh, we see the background and the laying of the work there in Ephesus. I personally thank you for allowing me to visit it and um, actually see it in person. And um, we just are grateful, Lord, for our faith, for the hope that you've given to us, and not to fall into the snare and the trap that the church of Ephesus did by leaving uh, their first love. Lord, if that's any of us this morning, uh, we want to remember what it was like. We want to repent and get back to that first love relationship with you. And we thank you for your word this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. All God's people said, amen. amen.